Three men, one woman, cheating, lies and heartbreaking tragedy fill today's case. The case of 34-year-old Susan Casey, who disappeared right outside of her front door, leaving family, friends and the investigators baffled. While this might happen in big cities, it definitely didn't happen in the small town of Glendive, Montana. With zero trace of Susan left behind, investigators would soon learn that all the men in Susan's life happened to be right there at the time that she disappeared. Hey Coffee and Crimers, I'm your host, Belle Fagan. Born as Susan Marie Limesand into a loving but strict Catholic family in the town of Circle, Montana, she was the only girl with four brothers. But Susan was never treated like a little prissy princess growing up. Instead, she loved riding horses with her dad and did her fair share of mucking out the stalls and getting dirty in the fields. Her sister-in-law Valerie called Susan a feisty thing. After graduating high school, Susan moved three hours away to Billings, Montana and attended a technical school. And it was there that she met Marty Larson. It wasn't long after the two started dating that she found herself pregnant. So in 1993, together they moved back to Susan's hometown of Circle and had a beautiful church wedding surrounded by her family. The newlyweds welcomed their daughter Mariah and a few years later a son named Shay. But their whirlwind romance and marriage wasn't one destined to last. After five years of marriage, the couple divorced in 1998, with Susan getting custody of both the kids and with Marty leaving without a second look back. Now, Susan wasn't one to let the grass grow, and while working as a medical transcriptionist, she met Ted Casey. A little more of a man's man than Marty, with rugged good looks and 14 years her senior. Her friends and family thought that they were a great match and this might actually be the man to settle Susan down. And for a while, he did. They got married and had two daughters of their own together, Kiana and Charlie. But the stay-at-home domestic life was not the life for feisty Susan. So it wasn't long before Ted and Susan started having issues in their marriage. They had completely different personalities and expectations of each other. Susan would tell her sister-in-law Valerie that he wanted her home by the 10pm news and was just constantly trying to tame her. And then one night, while out at a bar, it reached a boiling point. With a fair few drinks inside both of them, they started arguing, resulting in Ted dumping a beer over Susan's head. And then he found himself arrested and spending the night in jail after he slapped her across the face. And that was that. Their marriage ended that night. Susan moved out, took all four kids and found her own apartment in town. Now, like I said earlier, Grenville was a small town and small town gossip gets around fast. Susan was described by the locals as someone sowing some wild oats. She liked to have fun and didn't care what anybody thought. And I mean, you do you, girl, but you have always got to have safety in mind. And when you're a mama... Like it or not, but your babies have got to come first. So the night she disappeared, Susan left her eldest two children at their Ponderosa apartment. So Mariah was 14, Shay was 12. And then she took the youngest two girls to Ted's house for the night. 
So remember, the older two were her kids with Marty and the younger were her kids with Ted. She popped in to see her sister-in-law who noticed that Susan was a little more dressed up than normal and had a full face of makeup. But she assumed that Susan must have been going on a date. She met up with friends for drinks and then at around 11pm that night, which was a Friday, Susan left the bar. Early the next day, her eldest two, the ones at home, started to worry. They were used to the fact that, yes, Susan liked to party and would fairly regularly go out at night. But on the flip side, they were also used to her always coming home, whether it be the same evening or into the early hours. But she would always be home when they'd get up. So they call their mum and get no response. Worrying even more now that something must be wrong, they call their grandparents. And that's what would begin the search for Susan. Incidentally, Valerie, who was married to Susan's brother, Rusty, had already called Susan that morning, inviting her to go shopping, but hadn't heard back. Then, Rusty called her from work to say that no one could find Susan. Valerie immediately drove out to Ted's house, thinking that maybe Susan was there. After all, she'd dropped the youngest two there, so maybe it had been late when she got back and she just crashed there for the night instead. But when she pulls up to the house, it's completely dark and there was no sign of Susan's car. She calls Rusty and tells him that she's coming to pick him up so they can both go over to Susan's apartment. She does, they do, and they find nothing that would indicate that she'd upped and left. Now, you might be thinking, okay, so what? She's not answered her phone. She's probably hung over on a friend's couch, hasn't woken up. Lots of people are crappy at hearing their phones or even replying to calls and texts but not Susan. Everyone who knew her called her phone her lifeline. It was a running joke in the family that it was attached to her permanently and that she would always answer it. So this is a huge red flag, which means they immediately know that something is wrong. Valerie and Rusty wasted no time and headed straight to the police department in Glendive. Officers started their investigation, obviously, by going to Susan's apartment. There they recorded video of the inside and outside of the apartment building. And based on the older kids' accounts, Mariah and Shay's, their mum never came back inside the apartment after leaving that early Friday night. Just as Valerie and Rusty had seen, inside the apartment there was no sign of a struggle or that a crime had been committed. But outside, investigators noticed a couple of strange things. Not only had Mariah now found her mum's phone, but the Ponderosa apartment building was located right off the street. In the doorway next door to the building, they found a footprint in the dust. But what made it strange was that entrance was no longer in use, and the print looked recent and fresh. They then walk around the building and noticed a drag mark in an alleyway. There's no sign of blood, but again, the drag mark looked like something heavy and had been recently pulled along the ground. But with no body, no blood, or signs of foul play, they didn't even know if Susan was dead. Thankfully, they didn't let that stop them. They knew in their gut something was wrong. Susan's family, friends, and the whole area agreed. How could someone just vanish in this tiny, quiet town? And was someone else going to be next? 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Since that slap, Susan and Ted had been separated, but legally they were still married, making Ted Casey suspect numero uno. We all know that's just how these things roll, okay? Someone dies or disappears, etc. The spouse is going to be the first port of call slash suspect. No shade to the person, it's just police procedure 101. So they try to get a hold of Ted, but coincidentally, he's now out of town. But he told them that he would be back the next day and would come straight to the station. I mean, super odd considering that he had his daughters staying over with him. While they wait for Ted to come back into town, investigators start tracing Susan's movements that night. And suddenly, they find their next suspect. Susan's boyfriend, Brad Holzer. Now, if you think the husband is always a suspect, then you're definitely going to think a married boyfriend will be too, right? So police bring Brad in to talk and he puts himself even more on their radar. Not only had he seen her that night, but he told investigators that he dropped her off at her apartment around 5am. But how can that be if she never made it inside? Brad Holzer had come into Susan's life only three weeks before, although that's not quite accurate because this was actually the second time of being in her life. Three weeks prior to her disappearance was St. Patrick's Day of 2008. He'd been hanging out at a bar and looked up to see a familiar face looking back at him, Susan. Years before, as teenagers, they had briefly dated and then, like a lot of teen romances, they just drifted apart. So just by pure chance, they found themselves at the same bar that night after all these years. Obviously, they started catching up and immediately became inseparable. Brad told investigators that he picked Susan up around 11pm that Friday night and they drove out of town and parked in his truck near a place called Yellowstone. Now, you don't need to be a genius to figure out what they got up to, okay? Parking up in a deserted area at night is for one reason only. They finished what they were doing, and eventually he drives her back into Glendive. He pulls into a parking spot across the street from her apartment, and the two start talking and kissing for a little while before she finally hops out of the truck. Her bra slung over her shoulder, and she does that well-known walk of shame towards her building. He finishes his interview by saying that he saw her in his rear view as he backed out of the parking spot and headed towards his house a few miles away, but he didn't wait for her to go into her apartment building. Can I just stop there and say, if there are any guys listening, please, 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 
always make sure your date gets inside, okay? (laughs) That's just chivalry. He then said he got home around 5.30am and went straight to bed. His wife arrived home at 6am from a date of her own. Yep, 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 yep. They were married, still living together, but seeing other people. And in fairness, they were going through a divorce, but it still just feels a little weird. Police obviously want Brad's wife's version, and she corroborates that, yes, when she got back, Brad was there and fast asleep. Just for good measure, though, they interview Brad and his wife separately a few more times to see if anything trips them up, but their stories never change. So they're essentially off the list of suspects because there's no evidence to show that either of them had anything to do with Susan's disappearance. Literally everything about Brad's story made sense, except for one strange detail. But even he thought it was bizarre. Earlier in the day before he met Susan at 11pm, he got a weird email. The sender's name was Denise Johnson, and he didn't know anybody with that name. And the email simply said, how is your girlfriend and how does your wife feel? But we'll come back to that in a bit, okay? Because by now, Susan's estranged husband, Ted, has gotten back into town and sat down with investigators. He said that the morning Susan disappeared, he had left around 5am. I mean, 5am sure is a popular time in this town. (laughs) And he had taken his two daughters to his brother's house. On the way back, he drove past Susan's apartment, but not to look for her, simply because he had to drive past it to get to the town hall where he was meeting someone to do some work. After that meeting, he then drove out of town to a rodeo all of which had been pre-planned well before Susan went missing. So, so far, the estranged husband has been near her apartment at the last time she's been seen, and Brad, the boyfriend, also was there and the last person to see her. Whoosh. So they asked Ted about the last time he saw Susan, and he said that it was when she dropped the girls off around 7pm the Friday night. But he did admit that he had called her later that evening after he had received a strange phone call. An unknown male voice called him around 9pm asking what he thought about the fact that his wife was seeing Brad Holser. He was up front with the investigators, telling them that, yeah, he was upset, finding out that she was seeing someone. So he called Susan to confront her. After all, they were still married and her moving on so quickly was a massive blow to his ego, especially for a man in a small town where everyone talks. Susan said to him that she wasn't cheating and the call ended with both of them mad. So police are stumped. They kind of have two suspects in what looks like to be a love triangle gone wrong, but they had no answers. Yes, both men admit to being in front of Susan's apartment building at the same time that Susan went missing, but there is literally no proof that they had anything to do with her disappearance. Two suspects, both with means and opportunity, but absolutely nothing to go on. After talking to Brad's wife and Ted's brother, it really did seem like their alibis were legit. Both men seemed to have been exactly where they said they were just after Susan was last seen. But then a small break comes in the case. Another witness, but not a person. Just down the street was an ATM with a working camera. So did that capture anything from that early Saturday morning? 
The footage was a little grainy, especially as it had still been dark outside, but it cleared Brad and Ted completely. The footage showed both suspects doing exactly what they said. Brad's truck pulls in and a while later, the dome light inside the truck comes on and Susan gets out. As she's walking across the street, investigators can see Brad drive off. She then disappears out of view, which would make sense because her door to her apartment was not in line with the camera. Then, a little while later, they see Ted drive right past, never stopping on his way to the town hall, just like he had said. So they are officially back at square one. Days keep ticking by, leaving Susan's loved ones on edge and wondering whether each time the phone rang, would it be the police saying they had finally found her? They knew in their heart of hearts that she wasn't alive because she would never have left her kids and family willingly. Her family said that out of everything Susan loved in life, she loved her children the most. So now they were all just living in limbo, waiting to get the worst news possible. And a month later, they would get just that. Susan's body floated ashore in the Yellowstone River, 28 miles from her apartment door. The detectives working the case drove out to the river to confirm if it was definitely Susan. And they knew immediately. She was wearing the shirt that Brad had told them she was wearing in his interview. No bra and only one shoe. Their missing persons case had officially become a homicide case. An autopsy showed no signs of water in her lungs, meaning that she'd already been dead before she went into the water. Her hyoid bone was crushed, meaning her cause of death had been manual strangulation, which of all the ways to murder is a very up-close and personal way for a killer to take their victim's life. Now Susan's body had been discovered, the investigators pull both Brad and Ted back in. I mean, frankly, they're just clutching at straws at this point because really they have been cleared by the footage from the ATM. But they come back in and they both give the same story they had been telling since she disappeared. And to be honest, there was nothing on Susan's body that would suggest that they had done it. So they asked themselves, who are they missing? With Susan's body found, her family and friends now laid her to rest in her hometown of Circle at the small cemetery in May 2008. Now at the start, I told you how everyone had said that Susan lived on her phone. So it wasn't a surprise that it was her phone that turned out to be a key piece of evidence in solving her murder. Pulling her phone records, investigators saw that yes, Ted had called Susan and spoken to her briefly like he said. He even called back after she was missing, but before police had informed him and left an angry voicemail. But through all of the calls they already knew about, they found something else. Throughout that Friday night, Susan was called dozens of times by a number that no one recognised. The call started while she was still at the bar with her friends and then continued while she was with Brad. At first, Susan had answered, but then she stopped answering and instead sending them straight to voicemail. And the voicemails would lead them straight to their killer. To access Susan's voicemail, Mariah had handed over her mum's password. Using this as a good opportunity to try and get any more information that in the midst of the worry Mariah might have forgotten, they asked her to try and think about anything else that had been happening in her mum's life. And finally, 
2 plus 2 starts adding up to 4. The year before, Mariah had looked up her biological dad, Marty Larson, on Facebook and reconnected with him. And through this, it meant he also came back into Susan's life too. Now, even though Marty lived three hours away in Billings, Montana, Susan and Marty had started chatting a lot and then started seeing each other. In fact, Susan and Marty had discussed picking their relationship back up and possibly even their marriage and moving to a new town to start fresh as a family. However, Susan had put the plan on hold while she moved forward with her divorce from Ted. I mean, talk about a plot twist. She's still technically married to Ted, and she's just started seeing Brad. I mean, girl! At the beginning of April 2008, Marty had actually found out about Brad. And when he confronted her, she told him that she'd ended her relationship with him and that she and Marty were going to continue to work on their relationship. But that Friday night, canoodling in a parked car with Brad, I'm thinking Susan had plans that didn't include running off with Marty. Mariah also remembered that at one point in the night, Susan had called her asking how to block a number that was calling her phone. And this is where the voicemails come to play. That number belonged to Marty. Now, his voicemail started out normal enough, asking her to call him back, saying he was worried and that he needed to hear from her. Then they start turning more desperate in both tone and language. Eventually, he said if she didn't call back by 1am, he would make the three-hour drive to her apartment, saying, quote, I don't know what to do. You won't answer me, end quote. Not only did he sound desperate, but there was an edge of anger in his tone. Now, these calls were coming in thick and fast. I'm talking multiple calls within an hour. At first, police traced them to a cell tower in Billings. And then, after 1am, they started pinging along the highway that led straight to Glendive. So, a little backstory. I mentioned at the start that they'd met at college and things had moved fast with both getting pregnant and married. Then, after Susan left, she moved on super fast, marrying Ted the minute she could. And 24 hours into Ted and Susan's marriage, Marty showed up at their home with a shotgun. Thankfully, no one was harmed, but he was arrested and charged with several offences, including shooting at his ex-wife's house while his own children were inside asleep. Susan immediately took out a restraining order against him as well. And in those 10 years since he'd been arrested, Marty had had no contact with Susan or his kids. He didn't pay child support or make any effort to check up on Mariah and Shay. So the cops hadn't even considered him a suspect until Mariah came forward with that info. Police obviously want to talk to Marty about the 22 phone calls and what he was doing outside her apartment building at 5am. Because, yep... His phone showed that he too was right outside her building when she went missing. So Marty comes in and begins telling them the similar story that we'd heard from Mariah, that even though he and Susan had been estranged for 10 years, they had rekindled their romance in the last year and were looking forward to getting married. Police searched his apartment and found what looked like a list of things needing to be done when organising a wedding, like speak to a minister, book accommodation, etc. Police then ask him to take off his shirt and see a huge scratch down his back. Obviously, alarm bells are ringing at this point. 
That Friday night, Susan had told him that she was going out with friends for a few drinks. He told her that he was a little worried because she tended to overdo things alcohol-wise, which he told police was why he'd been calling so much, simply to check that she was being safe. He even admitted to them that, yes, he'd left Billings around 1am when he hadn't heard back from her, claiming that he thought something must be seriously wrong. His phone records show that he pulled in next to the apartment building at around 4.30am and parked around the side exactly where investigators had found those weird drag marks. They asked him what did he do when he got there and he told them that he just stood outside her building waiting for her to get home. So that now also checks off the dusty footprint that they found at the unused entranceway. But this is where Marty's story starts unravelling. He claimed that he didn't see Brad's truck pull in right across from the apartment building or see Brad and Susan getting hot and heavy for 20 minutes inside the vehicle. Now, while the interview with Marty is taking place, other officers are actually simultaneously searching Marty's van and they find a heck of a lot of blood. The van also looked freshly washed on the outside, except for the underneath where they find a lot more blood. So techs take samples and get them sent off to the lab. Confronting Marty with this, he doesn't deny it, saying that, yeah, there will be blood because he hit a deer on his way back to Billings, and that's why he'd also washed the van. The investigators had also found that the inside of the car had been cleaned with some sort of bleach product, and inside his apartment, they'd found an empty bleach bottle that matched the same bleach compound in his van. The results from the lab come back and showed that the blood under the vehicle was in fact from a deer. Super frustratingly, the blood from inside the van was too degraded by the bleach to be able to get DNA. The only thing to survive Marty's vigorous cleaning was some hairs caught in the plastic moulding of the van, and they did belong to Susan Casey. The only problem was that that wasn't strong enough evidence. Investigators knew that a defence lawyer could explain that away easily, because allegedly they'd been a couple again, right? So she very well could have been in his van. So going back to the voicemails, they find one last call left by Marty. And this time, it was long after Susan was dead. And his tone was happy without any hint of desperation in it. He said that it was great to hear from her and he was glad she was okay and that he was heading home. Yeah, super strange, but alone, not enough to arrest Marty. Even after the fact that the phone records showed that no calls had been made from Susan to Marty. So how had he heard from her? But he was free to go. And pretty soon after his interrogations, Marty left Montana and moved to Arizona. Susan may have been laid to rest, but for her family, they were still left with questions, along with their grief. The youngest two girls were now living with Ted, and the eldest two children had moved in with their uncle and aunt, Rusty and Valerie. Every one of them left to deal with an enormous void in their lives. Rusty was so sure that he knew who had killed his sister, and was tired of waiting for the wheels of justice to turn. Full of rage, he started talking to Valerie and his friends about taking matters into his own hands, making a plan on how he could take Marty's life, just like Marty had taken his sister's. It consumed him to the point where Valerie and Rusty's marriage broke down. Then, in November 2011, Rusty did take a life. But tragically, it wasn't his sister's potential killer, but instead his own.
At 32 years old, he left behind his parents, his ex-wife, his young son and Susan's kids. An already devastated family that had now been dealt another blow. Fittingly, he was buried right next to his sister. Another year passed and the district now found themselves with a new chief prosecutor who, unlike his predecessor, believed that this case still very much needed attention. Almost four years after Susan never made it home, in February of 2012, a suspect was finally arrested. Walking out of his apartment in Phoenix, Arizona, Marty Larson was charged with the murder of Susan Casey and brought back to Montana. As he waited for his trial behind bars with no bail, time ticked by again and more devastation was around the corner. Mariah, now a beautiful 18-year-old, was only 24 hours away from graduating high school when they guessed that she fell asleep at the wheel of her car and crashed. There were no skid marks. Instead, her car had just simply hit a ditch and rolled the car. I am literally broken at what this family has endured. So gathering at the little cemetery for the third time, they buried another part of their hearts and souls. Mariah buried side by side with her mum Susan and her uncle Rusty. There were no negotiations for Marty. The DA had no interest in offering him a plea deal. They had waited all these years to bring Susan's killer to justice and a lenient deal was not justice. Susan's remaining family was on board with that decision, even though Marty was still claiming his innocence. As Marty Larson walked into the courthouse, everyone was shocked. In the time that he'd been held in jail awaiting trial, he had lost nearly 80 pounds. He looked like the shell of the man who had sat in the interrogation room crying over Susan's death. The prosecutors showed the jury a timeline of Marty's Friday night into Saturday morning. It showed a man desperate to hold on to the woman who had previously slipped away from him. As he drove toward Glendive, it was evident in his voicemail messages that he was close to losing control. The evidence they'd found in his apartment showed a man who had planned out a new life with Susan. But what he saw early that Saturday morning when he arrived in Glendive had crushed those dreams. The prosecutors then talked about the evidence found in the back of the van, the saturated bleach spot and Susan's hair. Then, remember the strange email that Brad had gotten and the phone call that Ted had received? Well, they came back into play. They were traced back to a computer owned by Marty. It showed that Marty had done everything to ensure that the two other men left Susan alone. And when that hadn't worked, he made sure that Susan could never be with any other man ever again. In their closing argument, they laid the story out one final time. Marty arrived at the apartment building before Brad and Susan. He found her car, but not her, so he waited. He saw her arrive with Brad. He waited and watched the couple. Then, as Brad left, he stepped out of the alcove and confronted Susan. Now, Marty had been stewing for so long, and obviously we don't know what was said in those early morning hours, but whatever it was obviously wasn't what Marty wanted to hear. Susan's fingers had showed that she had fought for her life as Marty strangled the life out of her, and let's not forget the scratch mark he had on his back when police interviewed him. He dragged her through the alley and put her in his van. He headed towards the Yellowstone River where he eventually dumped Susan's body. Then, when he arrived back home, he left that entirely different sounding voicemail, the one pretending everything was fine. 
The defence, though, argued that everything they'd heard was mere speculation. And, obviously, they tried to lay the blame at Brad or Ted's feet, especially as Ted was the one who they said benefited the most from Susan being dead, as he was still the beneficiary of her life insurance policy. But the truth was that he used that policy to pay for the funeral and then divided the small amount left over between all four children. Marty took the stand and admitted that, yeah, he had been there around the time Susan was killed, but he had no idea what happened. His story was that he was waiting for her to return, but he hadn't seen her walk across the street from Brad's truck. He just hadn't seen anybody come back. So he basically drove three hours to get to her place, parked and sat in a place where he couldn't even see when she would arrive home, and then after all of that just gave up and drove off back to his place without waiting to see her. I mean, make that make sense. The jury took about three hours to come back with a guilty verdict. And on April the 5th, 2015, Marty Larson was sentenced to 110 years in prison for the murder of Susan Casey. And he's not eligible for parole until 2042. And to this day, he still claims his innocence. But for Susan's remaining family, they believe that justice has been served. To see today's case photos, click on the link in the case description to join the Cup of Coffee and Crime Facebook discussion group. Until next week, stay safe. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.